0: It's, um, it's one of the evils of our time, I think, maybe just of all time, that, um, <clears throat> that we, we've somehow been sold a, an idea of what will make us happy uh, that causes us to chase things that are almost guaranteed not to really make you that happy. Um, it's like there's this weird misalignment between what society tells us to really value and chase after and the things that will actually satisfy you in a meaningful way. Uh, And I don't think you can blanket say that all those things are bad, but many moms I know of, particularly those who are in the trenches, as they call them, um, and you spend a lot of time at home with small people and you don't get to have as many adult conversations as potentially your psychological health requires, um, might be or might buy into that lie that the people who get to go out into the real world and talk to the other big people and make money or make a difference, that they're really getting to do the real thing and you're kind of missing out. Uh, And we just know that that's bollocks, right? That's nonsense. That's ridiculous. That the stuff that parents and particularly moms get to do at home, and of course we're expanding the definition from just biological, physical moms to all those who serve and nurture and feed and grow those around them, uh, that that's the real stuff. And the people who are going out making some Monopoly money are doing the fake stuff to fund the real stuff that's happening in whatever space uh, mothering and parenting gets to take place. So I don't know if we're able to really take it on, but if there was some way for us to fight that pernicious lie, that the things that are satisfying or the things that are out there and that can be achieved or can be accumulated or can be bought and sold, like that's the real stuff. That's not the real stuff. Um, That's just the, the side gig that funds the real stuff. Uh, and so those of you that are involved in the real stuff, uh, really being like Christ to little children, particularly, um, and, and also being like Christ to the often hopeless, uh, grown up men that live in your house, uh, thank you so much for, for the way that you mother. Um, We're very, very grateful. And I hope that you do feel celebrated today uh, and honored most importantly by God, not by us. Um, although if we can add a cupcake to however God honors you, uh, that feels like a pretty good deal. And, um, and you'll also be relieved to know now that the people playing golf this weekend are apparently like semi-pro, that is the club champs. So whereas last week there was a ball that I think was teed off from over there that was intended to go about 100 metres that way that hit that roof. Um, you know just just nice for that guy that made a mistake to feel like a whole church was busy mocking him uh, At that moment, but no one is apparently going to do that this week because you know the people who are hitting the golf balls today uh, Get the golf balls to go where they want them to go So that's good news for for us <laughs> and they hope although they, Yeah, they supposedly have been doing a good job of that for the last few days if they've qualified to play today so you can you can relax on all fronts um, we we're about to, to continue our series as we go through the book of Acts, uh, and it's a it's a great passage, a really interesting one that we're about to study. But I wonder if I can just ask you to prime your mind um, by calling to mind whatever it is you feel when you hear the word church. I know some of you may be um, exploring church, visiting this one. Others of you may have been around church a long time, and so in fact this new era, this new time that we're entering into now, the post-COVID moment might be challenging some of what you, or threatening some of what you used to think church was. I don't know um, how much of a church expert you are, but it doesn't matter. I just want you to think about what you feel when you hear someone talking about church. What does it make you feel? Try to figure out a few answers to that question. For some, it's a frustrating place. (laughs) For some, it's an intimidating place. For some, it's a really in, inviting and, and kind of comforting place. Um, maybe at some moments, churches made you feel all kinds of warm, warm and fuzzy feelings, and at other times, times churches have maybe left you cold. But whatever it is, whatever your unique set of experiences of church and your assumptions about church um, might be, they'll cause you to feel something, and. Um, I wonder if I can just suggest to you that what you feel when you think about church is probably different from whatever anyone else here is feeling. We all probably have a slightly unique story in relation to God's people, uh, which is going to cause us to have some different things to feel. And if that's true, if it's true that you all feel something slightly different about church and that's fine, then can I be so bold as also to put it to you that perhaps none of us really feel all of what we're supposed to feel when it comes to thinking about church. That we haven't necessarily seen her clearly or understood her perfectly. And that it may be possible that God wants us to feel some slightly different things or bring some adjustments if we're going to get the most out of our experience of the bride of Christ. Is that an okay way to start? (laughs) That we all feel certain things when it comes to church, some really positive things. Maybe we have some really great expectations of church. Um, Some of us may have some negative feelings about church, which is also fine and normal because there are human beings in it. But today, I want us to continue to try to work out, well, how does God really want you to feel about His bride? What are some of the things you should expect out of your interactions with her? Not to judge us, not to say this or that church is doing a good job, or this or that person is coming to church with the right mindset, but simply because there's an invitation to a greater, more satisfying experience of the church. Um, And that's why we're studying the early church in the book of Acts. Um, And up until this point, we've, we've seen in the last few chapters, some pretty amazing things that are kind of fundamental components of being part of the church. We've seen radical generosity. At the end of chapter 3 of Acts, they're selling land, they're giving things, they're putting them at the feet of the apostles in trust to, to steward as a sort of fund to make sure that those who lack don't actually lack anything. We've seen not only this radical generosity, but we've seen incredible unity, that they all were of one heart and one mind, which means that is like a relational intimacy that must have been amazing to be part of. We've seen healings and miracles go on. We've also seen opposition from the government and quite cool rebellious behavior from from Peter particularly, uh, getting as far up the nose of the authorities as he could, um, which was enjoyable. We've seen amazing prayer meetings where they don't really need to be told what to do or led particularly strongly, but just unanimously they're praying these incredible prayers and and trusting God for such amazing stuff that the prayer meeting room shook while they were praying. And I suppose the other thing to say is that we've seen um, this unbelievable growth that everyone who's been exposed to the church has looked at it and gone, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Uh, thanks, Sage. Um, and really wanted to be part of it and loads are being added. So although there's this intimacy and there's this kind of united spirit, there must have been a really amazing hospitable vibe as well. If more and more people could be added every day and you're both deeply connected to these people and also kind of introducing yourself to these people for the first time and that's all part of the church. So that's some of what's been going on. Today, the passage we're about to study finishes with the line and there was great fear in the church that the thing that the people were feeling about church after this experience, was dread, was mortal fear. And seriously, when I say mortal fear, I mean some people had been killed. that Some people had died. And they were realizing that this thing they were reckoning with might actually be deadly. And that word church, in any good translation, you'll see that word church there for the first time in the New Testament. The word ecclesia at the end of Acts chapter, what are we in, four or five, whatever it is, the story of Ananias and Sapphira I'm about to read to you, finishes with this line, and there was great fear in the church. And that's the first time Luke uses the, church, the, the word ecclesia, which we translate to church. So if we're talking about like the first moment where God is getting the church up and running and installing some first principles for us all, always to look back on and go, okay, so that's what church can be like. That's the prototype. There's extra attention drawn to this moment. Because this is the first time from a group of disciples, a group of people, a group of believers that they actually get given their collective noun that we still rejoice in. The collective noun is first mentioned here at the end of this moment, the ecclesia, God's gathered people, the assembly of the saints, which we will be called for the rest of time, gets its first expression here. So if you're ever going to pay any attention to a passage about, well, how should church make me feel? What's at stake here? What are we letting ourselves in for if we're going to start playing with this idea of church? What are we toying with? This is a worthwhile passage to see. And before and after and everything around this, the news is really good. Great unity, great generosity, great joy, great growth, miracles. But that's not the whole story. And we would be doing Instagram church if we thought that was the whole story. There's a a pretty intense side to what church is supposed to be there's something quite important about this ecclesia this assembly uh, and so we're going to study that and i really want to say up front that the point of studying this is not to judge ourselves uh, or to belittle any church or this church the point of this is to go oh cool so that's what's possible <laughs> that's what we're aiming at that's what god has in store for his bride that's that's the the goal as opposed to that's the bare minimum that we should be feeling judged by. So I want us to do our best to be secure as we read this story uh, and not start flicking into judging ourselves or someone Um, because this is the first moment and a really important moment. And so God does something really extreme. Uh, and I think there's some fascinating things to learn. So we'll read it in detail in a second, but let me just summarize the story. There's a bloke called Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, and they're part of the early church. And we've already seen some amazing acts of generosity. Barnabas has sold some assets and given that money into the fund to make sure that no one lacks anything. So then he and his wife put their heads together. He owns some land, and he decides to sell, they decide to sell that land, uh, and they get they get price x for that land and then they decide to go to the community and say that they got price x less 50 percent for that land they're going to say yeah, actually what we sold that land for was 100 bucks when in fact they sold it for 200 bucks and look at us guys we have brought the whole hundred bucks to your feet and so they i don't think would have been unaware of how impressive that would have looked Or perhaps they felt that was just the norm, that was the standard. And so for whatever reason, they decide to to lie about the amount of money they got for the sale of their land. And they bring that money to Peter. And instead of getting, oh, wow, sure, guys, good job. That's amazing. Thank you for your generosity. They would have been surprised at the response they get. So the husband is the one who has the conversation with Peter. Peter. Zephira was off doing something else for a few hours. So he brings this money to the apostles. And Peter goes, what have you done? Why are you lying to God? See, so straight through the deception uh, and tells them, you've not lied to man. You've lied to God. You could have sold that land for whatever and told us that you're only giving us 10% of that, 20% of that. You didn't have to give us anything. So not bummed about what you've given us, but so bummed about the fact that you've lied about it um, and tried to test God or test his mercy. And having been found out, the dude drops dead. And some young guys pick him up, take him out the building, and give him a very quick, very unceremonial burial. A few hours later, Zephira, his wife, arrives at church. And Peter says, did you sell the land for X amount? And I don't know. It's impossible to tell whether Peter says the full amount or the amount they claimed. If he says the full amount then he's basically giving her an opportunity to repent because it's like, hey, the game's up, we already know. If he said the claimed amount, then he was giving her an opportunity to correct the lie. Don't know which he was doing. Um, But she says, yes, that's what we got for the land. Um, And then Peter says, well, the feet of of the young men who buried your husband a moment ago, I can hear them at the door. They're coming here to bury you as well. And she drops dead. And they take her out and bury her next to her husband. And great fear gripped the church. That's tough, hey? That's a tricky story. There seem to me, as I've wrestled with the story, three ways that I can respond to it. The first way, and maybe the most tempting for many of us, because this is an uncomfortable story that seems to jar with a lot of what we want to believe about God and about church. One option with that story is to simply dismiss it as some kind of old fable. It got through the editing process that the Holy Spirit was involved in. Shouldn't really be there. Maybe it's exaggerated. Reasons to to discount it. Uh, And you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, oh, well, maybe some smart scholar one day will explain to me why it doesn't really mean what it seems to mean. Uh, And so the meantime, I just won't let it inconvenience me too much. That's option number one probably, I would argue, an unwise option given that, as I said, this is the first time we see the word ecclesia. This is prototype church. We're seeing all these really important things about how to get the most out of church. And so if I'm going to take probably a third, you know, at least a third of the stories we have of what the early believers were like, you know, in these few chapters, it's a bit of a trilogy. There's generosity, there's this prayer meeting, and then there's this Ananias and Sapphira story. If I'm just going to draw a line through a third of the information I have at the moment of inception for the church, I'm ruling out a lot of, of data. <laughs> I'm ruling out a lot of useful stuff. So option number one, discount it, might be wasting something really valuable, but I can totally understand why we might do that. Option number two, I might end up terrified by this story. <laughs> that it just is scary. Option number three, I might be offended by this story that it just seems unfair or wrong or disproportionate. And as I've thought about those final two responses, if I'm terrified by the story, I suspect that proves that I think too much of death. And if I'm offended by the story, I suspect that proves I think too little of God. Let me just explain that. If I think too much of death, then this seems like unbelievable that God would do this. How dare he? If death is this ultimate dreadful result that must be avoided at all costs, that that is the worst thing that can possibly happen, uh, then this is a terrifying story if that's what's potentially going to happen. But the truth is, as we actually know, as you try to allow God to give you an eternal perspective, um, death's really not such a big deal. that seems like such a strange thing to say. It is the thing that dominates all of our psyche uh, so much of the time, how to avoid it or delay it. Um, but I imagine if we had God's perspective, we would see that blip, that move from from the physical realm into the spiritual realm as a fairly arbitrary blip. Um, and there is certainly nothing in the story to suggest that we're not going to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. Their salvation's not called into question here. If they were believers in Jesus beforehand, they'll be in heaven anyway. You don't get into heaven based on how much money you do or don't give to church, sadly, um, for those in charge of church budgets. Um, You don't get into heaven based on whether you do or don't lie about stuff. Salvation doesn't rest on any of the behavior involved in this story. So if we were to accept that their relationship with God was going to continue on for eternity... And that in this moment, these two people dropping dead isn't necessarily the worst thing from God's perspective. That might lower the anxiety levels a little. I'm not saying they lower them completely. But if I'm looking at the story, or if you're looking at the story, feeling abject terror, I think the challenge for us is to right-size death a little bit and be able to shrug our shoulders and go, Death, where is your sting? Yeah, it's very painful for those that are left behind, but from God's perspective, this is really an upgrade, moving from a failing mortal body into an eternal perfect one, um, that I don't think God looks at death the same way we do. So that's just one sort of comment. If even before you can start to engage with the story, you've got a level of anxiety that needs to be reduced. On the other hand, if you've got a level of offense that needs to be reduced, where this is just an unjust God being pernicious and nasty and untrustworthy, I don't have a simple thing to say about that. Other than that, if we're going to be in the hands of a living, holy God, then an element of, well, He gets to set the rules, just has to be possible. And that's hard to get hugely excited about, I know. We're in a very fairness oriented world. I know I talk about that quite a lot. But if you want to get human beings mobilized today, you just tell them they're being treated unfairly and we'll do whatever you tell us to do after that. Um, We're really into our own sense of justice. And the idea that there could just be a holy, glorious God who gets to set the standard, and if you lie to Him, bad things happen. Like, if that's what it is, surely I have to at least be okay with that in theory. Um, And so perhaps this is a real great jolt, this story, to recognize that we are reckoning with a glorious, terrifying, mighty, not particularly safe God. Um, And we need to deal with whatever it is, whatever sort of small king inside our own hearts that wants to wear its own crown that stops us being able to engage with the story. I'm not sure if any of those um, comments help you to be primed to study this with me, Um, but I don't want to be terrified and I don't want to be offended by God. I just want to understand what he was taking so seriously at the beginning of the church that he was prepared to do this in order to safeguard it. Okay, so shall we study the story a little bit? We won't take hugely long because there's really only one big idea I want us to get to. But let's let's begin. If you want to open Acts chapter 5 on your phone, it will help you uh, because it's not on the screen behind me. That's a small joke if you're listening on the podcast because we're outside and there is no screen behind me. And I've now explained that joke far too much. Um, Okay, let's begin in the beginning of chapter 5. A man named... Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The thing we're going to ultimately get to is the question that has haunted me since I first started studying this. And that is, in what ways do I think I'm lying to men, but in fact, I'm lying to God? Because see, Ananias and Sapphira didn't think necessarily that what was most dangerous about what they were doing was that they were lying to God. I don't think that was the deal. I think they were going, okay, can we get away with lying to men here? Can we get them to believe this? And we can theorize about why, about whether that was social pressure, whether it was a desire to be seen a certain way, a desire for promotion, whatever sort of human reason. But I think what they would have been thinking about was very human. And then Peter's having to correct them, going, no, 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 this is not a deal between human beings. The the problem here is not that you have defrauded the church in some way or tried to elevate yourselves dishonestly. Your lying to us is not the big deal here. The big deal is that you're lying to God. That is interesting to me. I wonder if there are things I do for promotion or in response to human pressure or to please people that seem like a smart white lie to tell for the sake of the social situation or the relational dynamics, but involve me lying to God. And that will often actually feel like lying to yourself. Because if you're a believer, that means that the Holy Spirit is in you. And so at some point, if I'm prepared to compromise ultimately what I think is true inside of me for the sake of what looks like it's needed by the people around me, Am I putting myself in a watered-down version of Ananias' situation? Does that question make sense? In what ways do I lie to God? In what ways do I compromise myself? In what ways do I cut corners with my own internal sense of what is right and what's needed for the sake of what others need from me or want from me or say will make me popular or say will make me liked? When might I be lying to God for the sake of trying to get something out of man that's the question we're going to ultimately try to wrestle with and it's fascinating that the lead up to that is Ananias and Zephira looking at an asset they have and not fully recognizing how much it's theirs to do with what they will Peter has to say to them hey you weren't under any pressure that was your land you didn't have to sell it and once you sold it you didn't have to give all of it why did you feel you did why is it that you felt this pressure or this desire to sell it in the first place if that's not really what you wanted to do? Or if that was what you wanted to do, why did you feel this pressure to exaggerate the gift? Where is that coming from? What weird social pressure, what people-pleasing thing is causing you to, to give more than you actually intended to give? And that's not an accident that those two things are connected. Because if I think about the moments where I have given more than I was really willing to give, or if I look at moments where I have done something out of peer pressure that in retrospect, I didn't really want to do, or any other version of that where I've not been true to myself and not been true to God, it's probably involved at some level me giving a resource that I didn't really take responsibility for as being mine. Have you ever asked someone to be at an event and they've said, yeah, I'll try to be there? It's the the stock Durban answer. This is the obvious thing we always talk about when we're talking about boundaries. No one else is in charge of your time. Yoda would say there is no try. There is only do or not do. Um, I think. I don't know. I'm not really a Star Wars person. But we spend a lot of time convincing ourselves that our resources are not quite ours. That there are other people who can decide what we do or don't do with our time. There are other people who can decide what we do or don't do with our Thought life, oh you know, well, they, they made me angry. I couldn't help but be angry. If you'd seen what they did, see, it's not going to you get to decide if you're angry. You know, all these little resources in our lives, we spend a fair amount of time, I think, outsourcing who's in charge of them. Peter's having to say to Ananias, and he's having to say to me, and maybe he's having to say to you, the, the places where you're not true to yourself, the places where you potentially are lying to God, the places where you are giving more than you really meant to, or pretending you've given more than you actually have, always seem to be linked to some part of your life where you are abdicating full responsibility. No one can make you give it. No one's forcing you to do it. You didn't have to. It was your land. It was your mind. It was your time. It was your energy. It was your emotional space. No one was forcing you. You didn't need permission from anybody else. You are in charge of you. So why are you pretending to have given X when in fact all you wanted to give was Y? I'm finding that a really interesting question. I don't know if that's sparking for you, any thoughts. But let's just continue because there's one or two other fascinating things here. So Ananias Ananias meets his demise. um, And I'm not sure. I mean, I wonder if that wasn't actually just shock. We don't have any instruction here from Scripture that God killed him or that Peter cursed him. He just dropped dead. I wonder if in that moment he had the sudden awareness of just what he was dealing with. (laughs) That he had thought this was some sort of tame God, or he had thought this was some kind of social operation where you could just climb the ladders. And then he realizes, wow, I can't lie here. Peter can see straight through me. God knows what's going on. And his overwhelming shock at having been exposed just caused him to have a heart attack. It's not impossible. But then what happens with his wife is even more interesting. After an interval of about three hours from verse 7, His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those um, who have buried your husband are at the door. And she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. I think this is an amazing passage for feminists, (laughs) just as a side note here. Um, because loyalty to her husband doesn't trump honesty to God. Do you notice that? That there's no like, oh, shame, a or, your husband cooked up this bad plan, and here you are sort of standing by him, so that gets you some credit. That gets her no credit with God. So to come back to this, it was yours to do what what you wanted. Why have you lied about this? I think many of us who have the privilege of being married also then really struggle to avoid the temptation to blame our spouse for why we're living our lives at the level that we're living them, And we're in murky ground here because when you're married to someone, you're one flesh and absolutely your connection to that person is the most valuable connection on earth. And it's the relationship you should that should trump every other human relationship, but it doesn't get to trump your relationship with God. It just doesn't. In this case, it didn't. You could argue that she was being a good wife, standing by her husband, being loyal. But if that was going to be her excuse for why she compromised her living honestly before this living, terrifyingly holy God, well, that's just not good enough. You don't get to say, I'll oh, bet my husband, I'll oh, bet my wife, I'll oh, bet my kids, I'll oh, bet my parents. There's just, there's just no other relationship that gets to hold as much, or have as high stakes and gets to hold as much stock in your heart as God wants to hold in your heart. And I think that's an incredible lesson. And I mean, don't miss how radical that would have been in this time. When that context, that social setting, the idea there would have been that the wife, surely her only job, her only role was to be loyal to her husband and stand by him. And that for her to out him or get him busted would have been dreadful. That's totally the wrong thing. She doesn't get to have her own thoughts. And God is absolutely edifying women in this moment, going, no, you stand before me on your own two feet. You'll be judged on your own two feet. You don't get to hide behind someone else or blame someone else or ask someone else for permission. You guys came up with this idea to promote yourselves. You guys came up with this idea to do more than you really were willing to do. And she had an opportunity separate from him Uh, to be able to repent of that. And she got judged on her own two feet. I think that's really dignifying in a kind of morbid way. Um, But it's also challenging because if I'm not fully happy or if I'm not feeling fully free to live out what I believe God is calling me to, there's no human relationship, no matter how close, that is a valid excuse for that. That ultimately I have to stand up and go, well, if I'm feeling this way or doing this with the resources of my life, I ultimately need to have an answer for why I'm doing that. I can't blame anyone else, and there's no point trying to exaggerate them uh, because I'm just testing the Spirit of God. I'm just lying to God. It's just worth mentioning, by the way, that we will see, as the church grows from this moment, probably more egregious things being done, and no one got killed for them. So maybe that also sort of lowers the anxiety levels here, that there is something really important for God to to fight for at the beginning of the ecclesia, the beginning of the church, that he wasn't going to kill about later on. um, But he was absolutely committed to us getting it right now. And again, I think it's this idea that we are ultimately responsible for the resources of our lives that we bring to this body. And that if you're going to feel pressurized into doing that, or if you're going to feel there's some social advantage to exaggerating what you bring God, right at the beginning, wants to say we're having none of that. We're having none of that. I want free people willingly bringing exactly what they have the faith to bring, not a cent more and not a cent less. I want you bringing what my Holy Spirit has called you to bring into this. And I don't want you blaming someone else. I don't want you responding to pressure. No leader gets to tell you what you must do and push you beyond what you're comfortable with. No husband or wife gets to push you beyond what you're comfortable with. No social pressure gets to push you beyond what you're comfortable with. And at the same time, you don't get to come and exaggerate what you're bringing and pretend you're doing more than you are for some kind of social standing. Each of you are absolutely individuals who are responsible for the resources of your your life. And right at the beginning of the church, God was committed to making that feel free and honest, and not pressurized in any way. So I'm going to come back to this question I've been sort of wondering about. In what ways do I lie to myself or to God uh, about what I bring? And I ended up moving over to Romans 12, because this is where I, th- I always get really inspired by the sort of description of what it is we're up to here. Um, we have all sorts of exciting things for us to do as life gets going in and church gets rebuilt and momentum and tomorrow night at the, we, we have a leaders meeting tomorrow night, which you're all invited to if you feel like you want to be a part of what's going on. There's all sorts of exciting things to talk about um, and, and yeah, really amazing things for our church to move into. Um, so as we look at the future and the things that our church might become and the ways she's going to bless this neighborhood and the ways we all get to play and be part of that, I don't want to. Doing Ananias and Sapphira, I don't want to bring more than I'm really willing to bring. I certainly don't want to exaggerate what I have brought. I don't want to get into some kind of man-pleasing situation because that's what's going on here. I want to make sure I'm doing absolutely only what is true to me and to my relationship with God. So let's go to Romans 12. Uh, If we're talking about being honest with ourselves, um, I find this an amazing passage from verse 3. For by the grace given to me, says Paul. having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're going to close in a second thinking about this but if the story of Ananias and Sapphira says, okay, so church is not some kind of play-play thing where you get to turn up and do some social climbing or respond to peer pressure. No, we're in the hands of an unsafe, terrifyingly holy God who's good and right, but he's, he's also dangerous. And this church that he's building is not some arbitrary thing to fiddle with. It's, a, it's important to him. He really cares about it. If that's what we're coming to, And we then look ahead to the future going, okay, I think I want to be part of that. I think I want to take my role in that seriously. Then here Paul is saying, okay, so you want to get involved? Cool. Get an accurate picture of yourself. Don't respond to pressure or to hype. And think of yourself incorrectly. You've been given a measure of faith, and that measure of faith is going to call you to do some stuff. You've been given some gifts, and the Holy Spirit is going to call you to use them. So how do you use them? Well, if you've got the gift of, I mean, it's just interesting what's lifted here. If you've got the gift of prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. Some of the things that are listed here, they just get listed. If you teach, then just teach. If you do this, then just do this. But there are a few where Paul says, where he modifies the way we use that gift. So what I mean is, In service, serve. In teaching, teach. In exhorting, exhort. You know, that stuff's like, if God's called you to do that, just do it. But there are a few things that you'll be called to do from time to time that you need to be quite cautious about the way you do them. Prophecies one, in proportion to your faith. I have no claim to understand fully what Paul is saying here, but he says a couple of times, you've been given a measure of faith. Take that amount of faith seriously. Don't get sucked into pretending you have more faith than you really do because that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. They were acting as if they had the faith Barnabas had to give away a whole field. And they just didn't. They were probably willing to have given a tithe on that sale. And that's all that they should have done. Because that's actually all they trusted God for. Essentially, if I'm trying to act more than I already have a revelation of God, if I'm trying to pretend I know God this well, in fact, I only know Him this well, I'm going to hurt myself. And whatever good I think I'm doing to the community is going to turn to ashes in their hands if i'm pretending i have this revelation of god and i'm going to i'm going to give of myself in a way that would be appropriate if i knew this much of god but in fact i only have this much knowledge of god that's fine god's stoked with that if that's all you trust me for at this point if that's the amount of faith i've given you go with that celebrate that stop comparing up and going well you know that person over there seems to be able to do so much and that's the minimum so i better pretend and when people ask me how I'm doing on Sundays at church, I better give the kind of answer I think they would give. Stop lying to God. Stop not being true to yourself. God's saying, if you're going to operate in this body, I need you to be absolutely honest, even to the degree that you trust me. I want you to be honest about that. If You, you should be able to come to church and go, right now, I don't trust God. I don't particularly dig Him. I'm not enjoying being in His presence. Fine. God would much rather you did that than you turned up going, oh, I'm blessed, eh? just a season, just blessed, and all that other stupid Christianese that we say. And that's just at a sort of linguistic level, but then the stuff you do and the ways that you serve and the gifts that you bring, it's really important that we do that in proportion to the faith that we have. So particularly if you're going to prophesy, in other words, if you're going to speak about what you think is right and true, be sure you have the faith to back that up. Instead of just spouting empty theories, the other one that he, he modifies is interesting. He says, um, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So if you can't be merciful and cheerful about it, Paul is saying, don't be merciful. If you can't be merciful and cheerful about it, don't be merciful. If you can't contribute and feel like an overflow of generosity, don't contribute. If you can't lead with zeal, wholehearted passion, don't lead until you've got that right. That's fascinating because that's an Ananias and Sapphira moment. If I'm going to give, but it's actually not generous, it's kind of because I feel I have to. If I'm going to have mercy but I can't be cheerful about it because I'm actually annoyed with you and I'm still going to begrudge you but I'll go through the motions of being merciful. If I'm going to lead but I'm not wholehearted about it, there's no zeal. I'm just doing it because I'm supposed to. It's Ananias and Zephira. I'm lying to myself. I don't have the faith to do that. I don't have, this isn't an overflow of a vibrant relationship with God. This is, well, why would I be doing that then? Why on earth would you lead in church if it wasn't with zeal? Why on earth would you give and contribute if it's not coming out of automatic generosity? Why would you be merciful to someone if it wasn't as a result of cheerfulness in the mercy of God? The only reason you would do that is because you felt pressure or you had a desire for social advancement. The only reasons you would do that would be man-pleasing ones. And at the beginning of the church, the first time the word ecclesia is used, God is prepared to kill to stop us doing that. Because it's got to be real. And it's got to come out of an authentic place in Him. And this community needs to be a safe place for people to say, no, I'm not there right now. It needs to be a safe place for people to be able to say, I can give this, but not that. And if I can give this much, I'll do it cheerfully and joyfully. But if you expect me to give that much, it's gonna feel like, it's gonna make me bitter. And this community also has to be a safe place for someone to come saying, I have the faith to give this, don't stop me. God has given me this much faith to give this much input and I want to give it and no one should get in your way. So as I end here, I don't, you know, normally you want to bring things back to the gospel in some way. I want to talk about how wonderful Jesus is and why you should be stoked and what practical thing you can go and do. And there just isn't one out of this text. So I'm not going to try and shoehorn one in. I simply want us to sit with the idea that The church is a very glorious thing that God cares a great deal about. And He's put you in it on purpose. And He's given you some stuff to give. But more importantly, He's given you a measure of faith. And I need to figure out what that is, what I can really trust God for, and pay attention to growing that. And anything in me that causes me not to be true to myself or true to God because I'm blaming someone else or I'm feeling pressure from someone else or I'm trying to get a reaction out of someone else, any of that dishonesty, just needs to stop right now because this community will be powerful so long as it's fueled by faith and nothing else, so long as it's freely given, not forced, so long as it's honest, not put on or exaggerated, because then God gets glory for every single thing you do as opposed to there being any other motive. I hope there's something helpful in all of that. As I say, it would be tempting to skip over this stuff. But what is inspiring for me is that this Ecclesia that gets described here is still alive. And I'm still part of it. And she's still changing the planet. And Jesus is still coming back for her. And so whatever it requires of me to figure out how to be in this kind of community, um, I know that I'll be more satisfied in church if I'm prepared to do these kinds of hard yards as opposed to just making it work the way I want it to work. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then we can get on with being the ecclesia to the best of our ability right now, to the amount of faith that we have right now. So Lord Jesus, we are your bride. You are our bridegroom. Lord Jesus, we are your disciples. You are our rabbi, our guide. Oh Jesus, we are your subjects. You are our king. And this group of people and the group of people that are represented by us as we sit here and those who you are still going to add, we all together are your body somehow and you are our head. And you have knitted us together for better or worse, whether we would have chosen others or not, Whether we'd have preferred to go somewhere else, whether we think we belong here or don't, whether we think we're worthy or aren't, you have chosen to knit us together into your body on this earth. And if we've had a cavalier attitude, if we've thought this is a sort of man-made thing that we can have theories about or have expectations of, and haven't, perhaps taken seriously your jealous love for your bride. Lord Jesus, will you just do whatever it is you need to do in our hearts now? We, re- If we need to repent, if we need to realign, if we need to see things differently. Perhaps some of us here have criticized other churches and we need to repent for that. Perhaps some of us here have been half-hearted in our approach to this church up till now and and we just feel like that moment's finished and now it's time for us to fully engage perhaps more worryingly some of us here have given more than we truly were willing to give and haven't stewarded the resources of our lives properly and for whatever reason we've said yeses when we should have said no because it wasn't going to be cheerful or it wasn't overflowing with generosity when we did give In whatever way, we're not being totally free and totally honest and overflowing completely from your life, Jesus. We just want to stop doing those human things. But then we really want more of your life to flow through us. And we really want more of your grace in us. And we really do want more faith so that we can trust you to do bigger, more amazing, more glorious things on this planet in your name. Amen. Well done. You got through the wind. You got through people getting killed in church. You deserve a Mother's Day cupcake now. And I think once the guys have held back and all the moms or just any, I mean, and don't even question, just any lady can go and grab a cupcake. You know, we're not going to question your credentials. But then whatever's left, blokes, you're welcome to um, celebrate, you know, on behalf of the women you're representing. God bless. Lovely to be with you. Would you jump up and meet someone new for the first time, greet someone, uh, and get some coffee and hang out, and we'll see you this week for leaders meeting tomorrow and praise and prayer at the end of the week, I think. God bless.